This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, Sweden. It's time now for episode 22 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. We have Ekaterina Klemenko of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, also known as CIPRI, and the uh, Conflict Peace and Security Program there. You're a researcher specializing in the Arctic, doing a lot of research on the Arctic for a number of years, uh, kind of spearheading the work at CIPRI in the, uh, the Arctic region and also the Caucasus as well, right? Yeah, I used to do the Caucasus, but mostly focusing on Arctic and Russian policy in the Arctic at the moment. Okay, and that's exactly what we're going to talk to Ekaterina here on this episode about a real specialist on the Russian aspects of the Arctic, something that we don't really um, get as much information and insight into as we'd like to here on this podcast. So it's really good to have somebody that really specializes in Russia, perhaps uh, the most important actor in the region that everybody kind of has to play off of. All the other countries have to kind of set their Arctic policy in relation to Russia. So it would be great to talk to you about that. We're going to do a couple of segments here uh, today. We're recording uh, several different topics, uh, all touching on Russia one way or another. This one, we're going to start out by uh, talking about the uh, Northern Sea Route and the importance of that for Russia. Russia seems to have really grand ambitions about how to develop the NSR, and that's one of the great questions about uh, the Arctic in general, is what's going to happen on and with the NSR, the Northern Sea Route. So perhaps, uh, Katrina, you can start by telling us about just the general importance to Russia of the Northern Sea Route. Yeah, absolutely. In general, I would say the development of the Northern Sea Route is one of the four major goals of the Russian Arctic policy. The Russian foundations for the Arctic policy that was adopted in 2008 and the document on uh, Russian Arctic policy and national security strategy that was adopted in 2014, 13, sorry, both talk about the Northern Sea Road as, uh, and the development and making it into an international transportation uh, route uh, as one of the main goals for its strategic view over the Arctic. I would say the Northern Sea Route has economic significance, uh, military significance for Russia, but also not so much cultural, but maybe it's part of Russia's image as a great power and its ambition to get back to uh, the history of Soviet Union as being one of the greatest sea powers in the world as well. Several uh, important aspects here from uh, economic point of view, of course, it's uh, the shortest route between Russia's eastern and western parts. It's the only route that Russia actually controls and only sea route that Russia controls that would connect its western part of the country and uh, eastern part of the country. There are other ways, the railroads and everything, but this is considered to be one of the most uh, significant economic importance. The other thing is it's becoming more and more the only available uh, route to transport uh, resources that are developed in the Arctic to various parts of Russia or abroad. In particular, we're talking about the oil and gas that are currently being developed in various parts of Russia in the Kara Sea when it comes to the Prerazlomne oil deposit and uh, liquefied natural gas on the Yamal Peninsula. Currently, all the new oil and gas projects that are being built and developed are having the idea in mind that it should be transported via the nose and sea route rather than pipelines, railroads, or other ways of transportation. And one of the reasons for that is climate change. Of course, the sea ice is kind of disappearing there, at least during the summer. But most importantly, melting of permafrost makes it difficult to create 
any transportation routes on land. So the infrastructure in general, not only the transportation infrastructure, but in general, becomes more and more uncertain to what extent it can be relied on with the situation of uh, melting of permafrost. So more and more projects with looking into the future in 2030, 2040, 2050, they are mostly thinking about transportation via sea rather than pipelines. When it comes to the military, it is the, again, the way historically proved uh, also the only military way between western and eastern parts of the country that is controlled by Russia that would allow for a fast transportation of military forces from one part to another via the sea. So that's also important. Of course, part of the Russian Arctic, the Kola Peninsula, is securing Russia's uh, strategic nuclear forces, sea-based strategic nuclear forces. So for that, Northern Sea Route is also important because it allows the access to the Atlantic and to the Pacific Oceans via the Arctic for the military forces of the Russian Federation. That's in itself is the guarantee of the great power uh, status in the world and not only kind of focusing on the Arctic region, but in general on Russia's status as a, at least not as a global power, but at least as a great power striving to become one of the greatest uh, sea powers. So it's also having this um, kind of pride in it. And yes, as you mentioned, the history of Arctic exploration of, they call it conquering the Arctic, is also a big part of historical narrative of why Russia is one of the greatest countries in the world. It's a history and culture of being the northern country. The north and the kind of romanticizing of the northern expeditions is also connected to the discovering and exploiting of the northern sea route. One one thing you mentioned there about the the military aspects of it and being able to move uh, military uh, hardware and, mm-hmm. and troops and everything from one side of the vast Russian uh, mm-hmm. Federation to another through the Northern Sea Route, it also uh, opens up a new flank for Russia where they had no potential adversaries approaching, at least on the surface of the water. Of course, there's a lot of submarine activity there during the Cold War. Does this pose a dilemma for Russia, this economic incentive to open up the Northern Sea Route to much more international traffic that Russia, I guess, would control mm-hmm. to a large extent, but even so, to bring all this foreign activity into their backyard that was once upon a time a place of only Russian activity? Mm-hmm. I would say there was always, yeah, not disagreement, but at least a debate between the military and economic development of the Northern Sea Route. It has always been considered, as you said, one of the parts of Russia where there is no enemy, where the borders are protected by ice, so there is no really need to enforce the borders, for instance. But now, not only with the increased economic activities, but also with the melting of the ice that becomes an issue. They have to reconsider a lot of how the, even the submarines have to be protected because it used to be protected by the ice and they could move freely under the ice, but now it's kind of also discussion on whether that uh, should hold in the future, especially we see more and more ice-free summers. And then uh, letting in the um, foreign uh, ships into the Russian, which they consider Russian waters, is also a big dilemma whether they want it, whether they don't. But here Here I would say the military and the Russian government kind of have this using the military for securing the economic activities in the Northern Sea Route. At least that's how they use an excuse for increasing a lot of military activities in the region for establishing the military bases along the way of the Northern Sea Route. It's of course not entirely true. 
That's only part of it is uh, used for actual economic uh, activities of the Arctic region or providing support for economic activities. Most of it has uh, to do with protecting the nuclear forces in the region and uh, ensuring the air defense for these nuclear forces and for generally for the Russian northern areas. But at the same time, many of the bases that are currently being established in the Arctic and on the Arctic island have the dual use purposes. They might not have the same base, but for instance, the islands have Nogurskaya uh, border guard station and the military base nearby. So technically, it's says um, kind of a dual use of these stations. And we shouldn't forget that military often could be part of the search and rescue operations because they have different facilities. So that's also kind of both about sharing the responsibility and pulling the resources together because the Arctic is such a, a difficult region to be in, to work in, to secure and to provide assistance as well in emergency situations. So that's at least the rhetoric that it can be brought together, the military aspects and the civil aspects. But again, there is always um, a debate about that, that foreign should, shouldn't be in because of the security situation, because of the importance of military installations that they are. So we will have this debate all the time, but I think at this point, the Russian uh, government wants to kind of ride both horses. It wants the economic activities there. It wants to show off this as an alternative sea route. We can debate whether it's possible or not, but that's what they want to show off. That's kind of part of uh, Putin's personal fascination with the Arctic and that he wants to make this as one of his... Arctic has always been his kind of personal project, so this is a way to show that his projects succeed. The more ships is there, the better. The more turnout when it comes to transportation there, the better. So all of it is kind of also a show of, of Putin's success of developing the Arctic. So I don't think we will see the decrease of one aspect of the or the other. So they will increase the military presence, but they will also try to ensure that there is some sort of economic activities there to show. And as well with the development of oil and gas there, as I mentioned, it's very difficult to transport it any other way but via the sea. And that's why most of the projects that are currently being developed and the new plan for the Northern Sea Route that has just been uh, adopted a couple of weeks ago also fully go into renovating and building new port infrastructure rather than focusing on the on-land infrastructure. When it comes to the um, economic developments, you sometimes hear about state actors like Gazprom versus some of these um, more private companies. I'm not sure how private private mm-hmm. companies are in Russia or not, but Novatech, I think, is the one yes. doing the LNG facilities in the Amal. How does, I mean, do you have any insight into how that works, these competition for resources, for positions, for influence, and for developing the Northern Sea Route? Is it mostly a state project or is there a significant private interest that they go into this as well? I would say, let me just start with a little bit of oil and gas competition, because we can't talk about the development of the Northern Sea Route economically without talking about the oil and gas development, because I would say there will be no Northern Sea Route without oil and gas. We will not see the increase if we don't develop oil and gas in Russia. And when it comes to oil and gas, so I would say here it's a very clear division. Rosneft and Gazprom going for the offshore development of the Arctic resources. They are the two only companies that are allowed to work on the Arctic shelf by the Russian law. They are allowed to take in partners to do that, but they should be the main kind of establisher of the project and have a 50 plus percent 
stake in this project. When it comes to development offshore, that anyone can be part of it, and that's where the Novatech uh, comes in. It is private actor, there is uh, no doubt there, but it's very, very, very closely connected to the Russian government. The person establishing the Novatech is very, very good friend of Putin's, so there you can't say that it's entirely off the Russian government. And then to actually start this Novatech uh, LNG, uh, Yamal LNG project, it took a lot of um, negotiations with the government and a lot of benefits. So pretty much it's a big question to what extent and how much money does this project actually brings to the Russian government rather than to this company because a lot of taxes. Yeah, they had to give a lot of tax breaks uh, to this company in the first years of development. Otherwise, it would have been completely unprofitable. And that's why when it comes to the Northern Sea Route, all of them are interested in using it for the transportation of their resources. And then uh, for the Novatech, we see investments into the Sabeta port infrastructure, but a lot of it has to come from the government because although they talk a lot about public-private partnership for building the infrastructure along, along the Northern Sea Route, we don't really see huge uh, interests from private companies to actually build small ports along, along the way. Maybe this big port, Sabeta, is being invested both by Novatech and by the Russian government, but in general, we don't really see this from other, from Gazprom, for instance, or from Rosneft, because their projects, except Lomne and Yamal LNG, we don't really see any more big projects coming up online anytime soon, most of because of the sanctions, because of the low oil and gas prices these days. So it's not really it's not really there to boost up the development of infrastructure around them. And we shouldn't forget that Gazprom, for instance, has been historically relied on building pipelines and transportation via pipelines. So it's also they have other projects, the Nord Stream, the China pipeline. So they are not really interested in uh, investing in the Northern Sea Route at the moment because they have a lot to do on the other side, on the on land and on other parts of Russia in general. So Navatech is actually the only one that's working, working in the Arctic and has to invest a lot into that. But then again, it's maybe some part of it, but most of it is still financed through the Russian government. I mean, is it going to be profitable, do they expect, in the long term? Or is it going to rely upon state subsidies and personal relationships uh, between Novatech and Putin to really make this viable? Or is this actually... Um, do you mean some- the Yamal LNG or do you mean the Sabiata port? Well, I guess those go together to some extent, right? I guess the port would not exist without the LNG plants, right? Yeah. So then I would say Yamal LNG, and they are now talking about uh, starting our Arctic 2, Arctic LNG, which is the second on the other peninsula project by Novatech. There is a lot of ambition and there is a lot of wishful thinking about developing it and starting it as soon as possible. But at the same time, if Yamal LNG was a very political project as well to demonstrate that Arctic is developing despite the sanctions, I don't know to what extent that will be possible with Arctic LNG too, because uh, we don't see Chinese, for instance, rushing in to invest into that. We don't see any European companies uh, trying to invest into that, like Total with Yamal LNG. So it's really, it's a question whether that will be developed anytime soon or not, especially since the lowering of the LNG prices. So I would say without state subsidies, that will not be a profitable project, especially since such high initial investment costs, you can't really make profit right away. And without subsidies, you can't probably make any profit in the long term either. But again, it's not only about economics. It's all about politics there as well. It's all about the image. 
there is some kind of economics there. They want to generally establish themselves as one of the exporters of the LNG, not only the pipeline gas, and that also diversifies the profile. Perhaps you could say you talked earlier about Putin and his particular interest in the Arctic. Is there a, a real hard economic and geostrategic rationale there, or is it more of a, of a symbolic, kind of a manly region that, that sort of suits his self-image? Or what, how do you, would you explain Putin's personal interest in the Arctic? I would say it's both. We shouldn't forget that Russia's return to the Arctic happened at the highest peak of oil prices. Back then, when oil was way above $100 per barrel, that seemed like a really good idea. Lots of oil there, lots of gas there. We should go in and develop it. And there were companies, mostly I would say Rosneft was pushing for it to get its hands on these projects. Not so much developing, but at least get its hands and making sure that it's there. That's why the leadership of this company was very very much, and particularly Igor Sechin was very much interested in securing it, and probably that's what brought it up for attention of Vladimir Putin, who is, uh, again, good friends with uh, Sechin. So that could be one of the explanations why he went there for economic reasons, though there are plenty of, still considered to be plenty of oil and gas somewhere else where it's not that difficult to develop, but at the same time, kind of securing this region was one of them. Geopolitics, Russia... It's one of the few regions where I would say Russia is very strong, where there is absolutely no doubt that Russia is the big player and Russia has the influence and it can show off. So from that perspective, it's very important for this power image and Putin securing Russia's image as a great power, as a global power. And of course, again, sea-based nuclear forces are based in the Arctic historically, and it's still there and it's not going to change. So military significance of the Arctic when it comes to the great power competition with the USA has never changed. And that's why it's also the more difficult the relations between Russia and US the more kind of we look into the Arctic and the nuclear forces there to just also show off its power and potential. I mean, in the West and in many countries, United States, uh, Norway, other countries as well, there's been concern about the Russian militarization of the Arctic. But from what you're saying, do you think that um, it's more of a defensive militarization to protect their strategic forces that have always been there for decades? Or do you see it as sort of some sort of offensive springboard for power projection in the Arctic? I would say, again, it's both. There is a little bit of both in there. We shouldn't forget that in the 90s, Russia has pretty much abandoned its Arctic. It's abandoned its Arctic in um, all the aspects, in the economic aspects. There was absolutely almost no shipping in the northern sea route. There was uh, a lot of military installations that were in the Arctic has been either closed down or significantly reduced just due to the lack of financing. There was no government financing to do so. Hence, there was a huge decrease of forces there and decay. Even those that remained uh, needed uh, modernization. When oil prices were really high on, Russia finally got the money to improve its military overall and Arctic wasn't an exception that way. So in one way we would see, I wouldn't call it militarization or remilitarization. It's an increase of military activities in the region. There is no doubt in that. It's kind of a military build up. So they're building up their forces, sometimes have to build from scratch. Some of it has to be new. Some of it has to be rebuilt and replaced. The nuclear forces has to be modernized. But at the same time, it's still not at the level of the Soviet Union kind of. The numbers are still not there. And in a way, they see themselves surrounded by NATO everywhere. 
I don't say that I agree or disagree with them, but that's their vision. They see that they're surrounded everywhere by NATO. NATO is increasing its activities. USA is violating international law and uh, invading countries here and there. So they feel like they need to increase and protect their forces. And again, Arctic is seen as one of those regions where this increase is necessary because it has been decreasing significantly in the 90s. And then it's also one of the regions the only region which gives them access to the North Atlantic, where we can talk further about a projection of power into other regions of the world. So again, it's two ways. I wouldn't say it's either or, it's both of those aspects are present. If we get back to the uh, the Northern Sea Route uh, itself again, now we've talked about the energies being sort of the key thing about the Northern Sea Route is getting these energy supplies out of the Russian Arctic to ship them to Asia and to Europe. Destination shipping, right? Yes. It's starting in Russia and then ending up someplace yeah. else or vice versa. But the other big question about the Northern Sea Route is the viability of it being a, a sort of a transshipment sea route, taking goods from China to the Netherlands or to Germany or to England or, or wherever across the Northern Sea Route. Do you see that as being as important for Russia and, and as much as part of this future vision? And and do you see it also being as realistic as, as this, this energy extraction and shipment that's already taking place? I would say rhetorically, it is both. Uh, they wanted always have, um, in 2010, at one of the Arctic Territory of Dialogue forums, Putin mentioned that we want to make the Northern Sea Route the transportation artery of the world that would be able to compete financially, uh, service-wise with any other shipping route in the world. But at the same time, realistically, if we look at their planning, I'm getting back to this plan for the development of the Northern Sea Route that's been recently adopted. That's actually, if you look at it, it mostly talks about destination shipping. The transit shipping is mentioned here and there, but when it comes to the calculation of how much resources and the tonnage of the turnout of the Northern Sea Route, it's all about destination shipping. In May 2019, Putin made this goal that the turnout of the Northern Sea Route should be 80 million tons of cargo a year. And then if you look at the calculations of what those 80 million cargo a year mean, it's mostly 40 million of those is the LNG coming from Russia to somewhere else. The rest is oil, then it's coal, and then some uh, metals. So again, it's all from Russia somewhere else, and transit maybe 5% of that. So it's still good, nice rhetoric when Putin goes to Pacific ASEAN meetings uh, to the Pacific. He always talks, oh, we're here to advertise how the Northern Sea Route, you should use it, we're really great, etc., etc. But when it comes to the costs, it's uh, getting more and more difficult to imagine that as being uh, competitive. And also very strange kind of politics of the Russian government controlling the Northern Sea Route. They introduced more and more laws that wouldn't really allow for foreign ships to pass the Northern Sea Route. So... So how do you explain those laws? It does seem like there's so many regulations about icebreaker escorts and yeah. Russian flag vessels and things. Is that to try to just make money off people using it or is it just a way to just maintain control? Several aspects there. One of them, they want to make money to maintain their icebreaking capacities. That has always been the case and they will use only their icebreakers for that. 
The other one is to stimulate the local industries to produce ships that would be able to uh, sail on the Northern Sea Route. So if you make regulations that only ships produced in Russia by some, I don't remember exactly the year, by 2040, I think only ships produced in Russia can transport oil and gas resources in the Arctic, which is kind of funny because they just bought like 15 tankers from uh, South Korea to transport the LNG. So it's, again, it's very... Double signals, but at the same time, it's also a way to stimulate local industries to work on and to use this uh, Northern Sea route. And then, yeah, they want to make money, they want to maintain control, and they want uh, the military, I would say, has some sort of say there, because it's not only control of the uh, commercial ships passing, they're also planning to introduce the regulations for the military ships passing the Northern Sea Route. And it's their vision, historical vision, that Northern Sea Route is their historical transportation route. So it's it's theirs. And then we will see how it plays out, uh, whether we will have anyone challenging this perception. I would say we don't see it currently because no one is really using the Northern Sea Route, so there is no one really challenging it. But we will see how it goes with the climate change and melting of the ice. And how important, I mean, if we want to bring up the environment, how important is the environment and climate change to Russian policymakers? It's very interesting to look at Russian Arctic strategy. If you look at this, it's all about uh, challenges that are brought up by the economic activities. They talk about the threats to ecosystems there. They talk about risks of pollutions. The strategy, uh, the foundations of the Arctic policy and the second strategy, the socioeconomic development strategy in the Arctic, they all talk about these risks. But do we see really the implementation? I don't. Maybe those who work on this can argue with me, but at the same time, I don't see it as a priority by the companies, by the government, by uh, some actors there in the region, by the shipping companies. I really don't see that set up as a priority. There are Slomne oil platforms considered a huge risk because it's not really a good platform. But again, the WWF, the Greenpeace, they all point out huge risks that are coming from that platform being in the Kara Sea. LNG, I don't know to what extent, but again, transportation of oil and gas resources via the Northern Sea Route also doesn't seem like a very good idea in case of uh, emergency situations. And then if we look at the rhetoric uh, by the government, they all talk about taking advantage of the climate change, taking advantage of the um, melting sea ice. So we should exploit that. So it's mostly about exploiting the possibilities rather than mitigating the risks or adopting to new situations. It's all about, yay, let's go for it. What do you see being the next, I mean, we were talking about some of these plans for the Northern Sea Route are decades into the future. What do you see happening in the next three to five years? I would say Arctic will stay on the agenda as long as Putin is the president, which seems like it's going to be forever. But that's uh, as long as he's staying in the leadership and the leadership of the oil and gas companies are connected and interested in that. It's going to continue. And then support the same when it comes to the development of the Northern Sea Route. If those oil and gas projects will be developed, we will see increase in uh, overturn of the cargo in the Northern Sea Route. Just for the past three years, the amount of cargo that has been transported via the Northern Sea Route increased dramatically. We had 18 million tons in 2018. In 2019, it was already 26. So next year is projected even more. But again, 
If, for instance, Yamala LNG is uh, not being developed and increases its capacity, if Arctic LNG 2 is not launched, then we will not see this dramatic increase. So it will all depend on the resource development projects along the Northern Sea Route rather than on anything that's happening on the Northern Sea Route per se. So it's the economics, it's the politics, but not uh, the climate. Often we hear that this depends on how extreme climate change will be in the, in the future. But you're saying that whether it's no sea ice or more sea ice, it's going to be economics and yeah. politics to decide the fate of the Northern Sea Route from a yeah. Russian perspective. Sea ice is disappearing only over summer. And you can't stop the LNG transportation in winter. It's functioning nonstop. That's why they get these super high ice glass uh, tankers. That's why they want to get more icebreakers. They will keep functioning ice or no ice. It's already there and it's already built. But if we don't see any increase in oil and gas prices, if we don't see the maybe at least lifting or in decreasing of sanctions, if we don't see international partners, India or China or whoever coming in, I don't think Russia can do it on its own. So it will all depend on the uh, economics rather and politics rather than climate. Okay, well, Katerina Klemenko, thanks very much for joining us here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. It's been a fascinating discussion on the Northern Sea Route, and we'll be talking to you some more now about some other topics that I can't wait to, uh, to hear your thoughts on uh, on the next episodes. Yep, thanks. And that's it for here on uh, episode 22 of the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.